Okay, I'm now recording as well. Cool. Why do I feel like I've like forgotten how to do this in like the one week it's been since we last did this? I don't know. I feel like I feel like that every single week though. Maybe it's just because we're not very good at it yet. <laughs> Welcome I mean, to the okay. Left podcast. <laughs> we're not very good at it yet. <laughs> All right. Welcome to the On Your Left podcast, the politics podcast that's probably to your left. My name is Katrina. I use she, them pronouns. And my name is Nirali. I use she, her pronouns. I think we're, we're slowly but surely getting better at this. Um, yeah, we've only made like nine episodes. Yeah, and you can find a new episode every Wednesday. Please subscribe to us on the place where you listen to podcasts. Yeah, we're pretty much everywhere. I think we're everywhere. Yes, we are. We are at your local podcatcher. Yeah, you're listening to this on something. If you would like to support uh, this podcast and our lovely voices and want us to keep going, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash onyourleftpod. So, what are we talking about today, Katrina? Well, today we are talking about defunding the police. This is something that has obviously been in the news um, for a long time now, um, for a few months at least. Uh, because of the Black Lives Matter protests um, across the country, protests ha- protesters have been demanding uh, to cut police budgets as a part of the Black Lives Matter movement in order to invest in other parts of their community's budget. Um, in New York City, uh, where I usually live, not currently, um, they deducted $1 billion from the NYPD budget um, just now, but... Uh, it's not nearly enough. Nobody's really happy with this because of the sheer amount of money uh, that goes to the NYPD and because of the way the NYPD has been used for years and years before this. Um, the current iteration of Black Lives Matter is just a fraction of what New York has gone through with police and um, with uh, the stop and frisk policies, the way in, like, December or November, Governor Andrew Cuomo just decided to start pu- putting police everywhere uh, in the me- in the MTA system and the train system. It's it's not enough because the the NYPD is massive and one billion dollars is kind of a drop in the bucket where the NYPD is concerned. Um, I will also say a lot of activists are currently upset because within that one billion reduction for NYPD's budget, 484 million, almost half of that cut is just shifting the budget of school resource officers to being under the Department of Education. They're not getting rid of school resource officers and they're just making it come out of the school budget instead of the police budget. Yeah, so they're like, here, here Department of Education, have this money that is going to do the same exact thing that it did when it was in the police's hands. It's not a real investment in our schools, in our education system, or in our students. It is still a little bit of a good thing because $500 million uh, will go from the NYPD to uh, other programs, including expanded internet broadband and youth recreation centers. Um, at the public housing 
public housing projects. However, um, people are also not happy because this does not include layoffs of current officers, which means the size of the NYPD will remain the same. And, like, I cannot stress enough how massive the NYPD is. It's it's huge. It, the NYPD is the largest police force in the United States. It employs 55,000 people, and the department budget was six billion in the for the 2020 fiscal year first of all it's really 500 million dollars and second of all it's really not much Um, to shift things some good news that we are seeing within the fight to defund our police and to create systems that better serve our communities nine members of the minneapolis city council a veto-proof majority pledged to dismantle the police department and promised to create a new system of public safety in their city where the law enforcement has historically been really racist. Minneapolis is a city where George Floyd was recently murdered. And council members have said that they don't have specific plans of what they're announcing for what their new public safety system is going to look like. Uh, They are still developing plans by working with their communities, drawing on past studies, consent decrees, uh, reforms to policing that they've seen across the country and the whole world. I think that's great news, especially because of what Minneapolis has gone through. Um, but it is going to take a long time for to see the effects of um, actually dismantling the police. It's going to take a lot of time and um, a lot of effort and probably, most likely, a lot of compromise. Um, I personally don't see the police force being completely dismantled um however uh it's great news that there is a veto-proof majority to dismantle the police in minneapolis i think it was a long time coming and this was just the straw that broke the camel's back the police systems in other nations and other countries tend not to regularly murder people uh, and when they do, we're understandably mad about it. Yeah. And it's really it's really weird that we're not as mad about this thing that's happened in our country over and over and over again. It's literally an epidemic. It's literally a public health problem that black people keep being murdered by police. Um, and with that, do we want to talk about uh, how policing maintains white supremacy in the United States? I would love to talk about how policing maintains white supremacy in the United States. Um, I think it might be important to remind people here real quick uh, that we're both Asian. We, we experience the problems of white supremacy and racism, but we do not experience anti-blackness and the specific ways in which policing has been developed in our country to target black people. Yeah, we are not black and we don't, we don't know the black experience. Um, especially when it comes to police, even though we see white supremacy from a slightly different perspective. So um, I think it's important to start with the origins of policing in the United States and how it all it all began. Um, the first form of systematic policing in the United States was the slave patrol and night watches, which were 
directed at black people and designed to build wealth for white citizens. So basically it means they were trying to catch people um, who were running away from slavery, essentially. Um, They were groups of armed uh, white people who rode horses at night um, among plantations and settlements to find runaway slaves, unsanctioned gatherings, weapons, contraband, and, like, anything that could hint at slaves rebelling in any way. It was literally created to force submission of slave of enslaved people of black slaves and um it's quite literally horrifying that that's what it was made made for um and that we're seeing a direct correlation between that and what's happening now the system of enslavement was terrible it is a human trafficking scheme and conspiracy that like all of our founding fathers participated in in some way which is weird it is weird um the system of policing still kind of stayed intact after emancipation and the confederacy was defeated because legally sanctioned slave patrols were just replaced by night riding vigilantes like the Ku Klux Klan and were systematically put into other systems and there were laws that were created uh, within the 13th amendment to still allow slavery if they were someone was serving a prison sentence. So loitering became a crime and loitering was a crime that was only ever enforced upon black people. And you know, because it was all about keeping the economic value and enforcing white supremacy. And that continued to stay and stick within our society, even as we dismantled some systems of racism. Yeah. The fact is that White slave owners saw black people as property to protect. They, they, they didn't see them as human beings who deserved equality. Um, and because of that, they needed a police force to capture them. And when that became the Ku Klux Klan, it was literally to destroy any thoughts of freedom black people could possibly have. Um, well, I just mentioned the 13th Amendment, so let's talk about that. So the 13th Amendment, which is the amendment that officially ended slavery um, <laughs> within the Constitution, uh, it basically says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. And I would like to focus on except as punishment for crime. The fact that there's an exception to let's not have slavery. It just makes me want to scream. We have an exception. It's within our police system. And over the past 40 years, there has been a giant expansion of racially targeting policies and policing as part of the war on drugs, and that's helped fuel mass incarceration. These policies include things like stop and frisk, which we're all very familiar with because Bloomberg decided to run for president 
for some reason. Yeah, New York mayors, just as a rule, maybe shouldn't run for president. Has it ever worked out for one of them? No. Oh, the most successful New York mayor who ever ran for president won two states. If you want to be president, don't be mayor of New York. And if you want to be mayor of New York, maybe you just don't. But yeah, these like these policies are hurtful and they cause mass incarceration and there are huge racial disparities within our justice system. Um, even though within the United States, it's been found that all ethnicities use drugs at a similar rate. Um, black people are incarcerated at five times the rate of white people for drug offenses. According to the NAACP, African Americans and Hispanics make up approximately 32% of the U.S. population and comprise 56% of all incarcerated people in 2015. And if they were incarcerated at the same rates as white people, prison and jail populations would decline by almost 40%. Those are staggering numbers. Um, that's a lot of people who are in prison for doing the same exact shit a white person did who never saw any consequences for it. It blows my mind. Um, but that it's even worse than that because this starts for black and brown people at an extremely young age. Hundreds of thousands of children ages 6 to 14 are arrested, usually by the police officers stationed in schools known as school resource officers, which... If you remember, we just discussed uh, New York deciding to uh, just continue to let that happen. Just continue to have school resource police officers um, at their disposal. Um, and yeah, I just, I remember being six years old. I didn't really know anything. Um, I didn't know what was against the law, what wasn't. I remember getting into arguments with friends. I was never arrested for that. Um, meanwhile, in Florida, two six-year-old black children were arrested for incidents in their first grade classroom. They were arrested. It... Yeah. I, I can't even imagine being a six-year-old. I mean, I would be so afraid and confused about the fact that I was being handcuffed and driven away from my school by a police officer mm -hmm. because I was a lot of things at six. I was a lot of developmentally appropriate things and I'm yep. sure it was annoying but I shouldn't have been arrested for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, black preschoolers um, are three times more likely are more than three times more likely to be suspended than their white peers preschoolers i don't i don't even remember preschool because i was two to four years old in preschool when you are two to four you're not really in control of your emotions i just hung out with a, a three-year-old who uh just started glaring at me because he didn't like the way I was sipping my water. That is what a three-year-old does. Like, they are not in control of themselves. They don't understand what's going on around them. 
And some, yeah, sometimes they throw temper tantrums. That happens because they are children. And they're not, they're just not good at regulating their emotions yet. Yeah, they don't get it. It's fine. And there's this idea that, like, especially black girls, I've noticed, are supposed to be grown up in some way. Like, they're not supposed to feel the same things that I'm allowed to feel. You know? Like, yeah. They're supposed to be more mature in some way than I would have been. And it's just terrifying that we're asking children to act like adults when the adults are literally traumatizing and terrifying them on a daily basis. There is no reason that the criminal justice system should be a part of early childhood development or in Uh our schools or in our elementary schools especially like when i was in first grade i still needed to sit in a booster seat yeah just to be in the car oh i was underweight till like third grade so i had to sit in the booster seat till then like i was tiny and yeah, it's saying, it says in this, this article that um, black children are also more often disciplined for subjective behaviors, like disrespect and defiance. And sometimes that means just a sh- being shy and not wanting to participate in class. Um, while white children are more likely to be disciplined for objective offenses, like smoking or like vandalism or things like that which are, like, literally probably in the student handbook against the rules. Whereas, like, yeah, defiance could just be, like, not wanting to answer a question because you don't know the answer. And that would be seen as defiance, and you would get a detention for it, and you would be suspended for it because you're showing attitude. While a white kid who doesn't know the answer would be seen as fine. It would it would not be a big deal, and people and teachers would move on from that. It's been really weird, I guess. So, so because my mom is blind, I have been going to parent-teacher conferences for my younger brothers since I was about twelve years old. Mm-hmm. Because for some reason, they still think printing out information for my blind mother is an effective way to communicate. It is not. Oh my goodness. Uh, so. <laughs> I am I am biracial, and I my mom is Asian and my dad is white, and for two of my younger brothers we have the same dad and my youngest brother who is eleven years old now his father is black so he is Asian and black, and he has had the same teachers has had a lot of the same like behavioral issues he talks about things when he probably shouldn't be Mm -hmm. he thinks math is kind of boring and wants harder work wow i agree with your brother (laughs) yeah he he often doesn't feel challenged he wants more difficult problems to work with he thinks that recess should be longer you know things 11 year olds think yeah and 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 when my other siblings, uh, one of whom very easily passes as white, did all of these things. They almost never got in trouble. It never came up. He was, mm-hmm. you know, seen as a delight in class who was very sociable. Mm-hmm. He was very friendly and helpful to other students. Was it a pleasure to have in class? Oh, yes. My brother, who 
is visibly brown is doing all of the same things but his behavior is often seen as a personal failing of his when it is exactly developmentally appropriate with every other student his age yeah it's again like expecting expecting perfection out of kids who just don't understand because it's and it's 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 because of racism these problems largely started when my brother was in first grade Mm -hmm. And we don't have school resource officers within our elementary school, but we do in the middle and high school. Mm-hmm. And I'm really worried about how he's going to be treated a couple years from now when he starts middle school. Yeah. Because the only... Because I know he's punished more harshly. I know that he's treated differently from his other peers because he's treated differently from people within his own family by teachers who have known our family for over a decade. Yeah. That's horrible. Yeah. And it seems to be the real solution is to at the very least take school resource officers out of the school because they aren't helping the students. They aren't providing a service to the students. Like the the thing they are supposed to be there for is protection. But I mean, how many school shootings have we had? (laughs) Scott Preston was the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas school resource officer, and during a shooting, he didn't do anything. Yeah, I I distinctly remember that. Yeah, and originally, he was fired for his lack of response. Back in 2018, he was fired because he didn't do anything, he didn't protect the students, And he wasn't helpful in any way when there was an active shooter shooting at 14-year-old kids. And he was recently reinstated. He is getting his badge back, and he is having getting back pay, and is retaining his seniority within the Florida Sheriff's Office because he was fired two days after the 180 days expired because under their collective bargaining agreement and according to the policy manual disciplinary action or dismissal may not be undertaken against any deputy for any act omission or other allegation of misconduct if the investigation of the allegation is not completed within 180 days after the date the agency receives notice of the allegation by a person authorized by the agency to initiate investigation of the misconduct. So they so, because so they finished the investigation two days too late. And they fired him yeah. two days too late. It's literally a semantics argument. That's why he was reinstated. That's why he's allowed to go to a school uh, apparently to protect them when we know, based on his track record, that he's not going to do anything. It's a big problem within police unions to have this because, of course, if you committed a crime... The statute of limitations would be way longer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've. There are so many things that require a long, steadfast investigation. And to have to rush an investigation just to be able to take real action doesn't help anyone. It doesn't help the community you're supposed to serve. It also doesn't help the police departments because the police departments, the 
general counsel for the county sheriff's office has said that they do not agree with this decision and they stand by their initial termination of the officer because he stood by while children were dying. Like, it doesn't let you get rid of bad officers, these so-called bad apples that we keep hearing about, if we have laws and agreements that specifically keeps them in power. It, it doesn't just protect these officers, it allows them to continue doing the same job that they were horrible at. He is being reinstated with seniority, which means he still has authority over other officers. He could train other officers. Other people will follow his lead and his decision-making, which we know are bad. Mm -hmm. They're just bad. He, he didn't do what the apparent... He didn't perform the apparent role of police officer. Like, what, what yeah. we... What we as, like, people who were raised in America expect or believe a police police officer to be. And that's happening everywhere. Police officers in schools are more likely to hurt black kids than protect any kids, is, is what it seems like. Yeah, so we just, we should stop having them if they're not doing anything mm -hmm. by being within the schools that we should just wait and call them when there's a reason to have police officers anywhere near our schools and, our, and near our students. The fact that it's possible for one of these resource officers to arrest a six-year-old. Like, what, what on earth can a six-year-old do to warrant arrest? Yeah. And, and they're just allowed to do that because they're police, because they have a badge on, the, on their outfit. There is, I can't imagine a six-year-old ever knowingly doing anything unlawful. Mm -hmm. And anything they unknowingly do can't be that serious. They're six. Yeah. Also, they just don't understand the consequences of actions because they haven't lived long enough to experience consequences of actions. <laughs> yeah. This is just putting undue trauma onto a child who will then have to live with trauma for their whole rest of their lives, and that will influence and impact the decisions they make later, like not to trust the police officers because they arrested me when I was in first grade. I can't imagine. I think we're gonna move on, um, just mm -hmm. a little bit, uh, away from the school to prison pipeline, although I'm sure we're gonna end up doing an episode about it eventually. Yeah. Um, I'd really like to talk about police militarization. A big part of police budgets is coming from militarized actions that police are taking. Since 1990, the federal government has transferred $6 billion of excess military equipment to local law enforcement under its 1033 program. And that means that police across the whole country currently have access to mine-resistant vehicles like tanks, uh, assault rifles and grenade launchers and i understand that we love you know in a society where it's really easy to get a gun but we're not all walking around with grenade launchers and we didn't plant mines within our own communities yeah there's really something to be said about the military industrial complex um that makes it so that independent companies can make all of these weapons this is 
excess military equipment, which means we made too much. And our solution was to just give it to the police officers to terrorize our own communities? Just make less! Yeah, just just maybe stop making it. But no, th- but they won't do that because uh, there are people profiting off of police departments terrorizing our communities. There are people profiting off of the fact that tear gas has been used in so many protests across the country. We don't imagine our police as being these heavily militarized forces in the United States. I mean, largely because we have a history of cop shows and, like, the idea that our police officers, you know, don't drive tanks or have grenade launchers. But then we see, we've seen in these protests over the past month or so, over and over again, how willing our country is and how willing the police are to use these against us and against our citizens that they are supposed to be protecting mm-hmm. and and just imagine how much of the budget how much of the police budget goes to training officers to use this equipment maintaining the equipment which they maybe get to use i don't know once every two years when the whole country gets mad about a black person dying because let's be honest even though they die all the time we don't always all get mad about it yeah and it's happening over and over and over again and they almost never use this equipment but it still takes up parts of their budget even though it doesn't serve the community in any meaningful way yeah and you were just talking about how how much training these officers have to go through to just learn how to use these ridiculous weapons but um police have also undergone warrior training which just teaches them to see every encounter as potentially life-threatening especially when those encounters involve people of color um i remember this one incident with a a caregiver who was with someone who was autistic um and, like, someone who was nonverbal autistic who just didn't understand what the police officers were saying when they were saying to lie on the ground. Um, and then the caretaker who was lying on the ground and who was trying to tell the autistic person to lie on the ground got shot twice. Because, clearly, someone who was sitting on the ground playing with their toy trucks um, and their caretaker is a threat and that's how police are trained to act it's a shoot first ask questions later warrior mentality that just pervades police departments one big reason this is happening is all because of one person so there's this guy okay his name is lieutenant colonel dave grossman and he has wrote a book that sold about 500,000 copies last I checked called On Killing and is the world's sole authority on killology which is a field of his own invention. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a real field. <laughs> his own invention that examines the factors that enable and restrain killing by soldiers and cops and 
over the past few decades, he has taught tens of thousands of police officers, sheriff's deputies, and federal agents in every, every state to cultivate a warrior mindset, which means being mentally prepared to kill at any moment. And he thinks that cops should be trained like soldiers, treated like soldiers, and think like soldiers, and think of their communities they serve as territory occupied by insurgents. Yeah. Which begs the question, who is the insurgent here? Is it the people who live there? You know, um, this just reminds me of something that happened a couple weeks ago um, in my really, really tiny, tiny town. Um, the the minuscule police department um, heard that some high schoolers uh, were organizing a Black Lives Matter protest, um, and they decided to post on their Facebook page that they were keeping an eye on the situation to see if it's, it escalates. These are high schoolers who are just learning how to drive. They don't know anything. I say that as someone who went to the high school that was being discussed. Um, yeah, you guys were like, taught well, it seems. Um, <laughs> we were t- the teacher, the English department you, you was great. <laughs> the, the, the English department was great. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I do trash it quite a bit. Um, but the police department in my small town decided to, like, act as though these high schoolers who have grown up in our town, who have been pretty good kids, like, nothing happens in our town. Um, They decided that these kids were insurgents that they had to keep an eye on, and they had to be prepared for, like, riots. We have, like, maybe five people in our small police department, and, um, they're all people we know. Like, if you've lived in this town, you know them. So, why are they looking at high schoolers in in their own community as something to keep an eye on? It, it was just yeah. needless. Yeah, when, when I hear about, like, high schoolers planning a protest, I'm like, hey, wear sunscreen. Bring yeah, an extra water bottle. Yeah. And not to brag, but I feel like my advice is way more helpful than saying I'm just gonna keep an eye on them. And it just, it fuels the fire of people who don't understand anything. Yeah, and if if you're worried that a protest could escalate into something more, a really great thing you can do is contact the high schoolers and ask if they need help organizing it. Ask if they need help doing, like, trainings before the protest on peaceful protest. Ask what you can do as a community member to help and protect these children. I'm very sorry, high schoolers. I know you don't like being called children, but legally you are. Kids, I'm sorry. I was there. I didn't want to be called a kid, but (laughs) I was. We just want to protect you. (laughs) It's kind of horrifying that this thing that was made to serve the community can so quickly and so easily just switch to a mindset of the community is the police department and everyone else 
is insurgent and everyone else is a dangerous threat that we might have to go up against. I mean, I think that's why, a large part why we started about, started this episode by talking about how policing maintains white supremacy and how the roots of policing is in white supremacy because so often what we see as our community doesn't include the communities we're hurting. Yeah. And it's, and that is just like exacerbated tenfold when you have a primarily white police department and a primarily black, black community, which is what we see in New York and in larger cities. And we know that the police are by and large not protecting us. They're not serving us despite what they, despite what we've been fed for our whole lives about what police are supposed to do. Because every single year, on-duty police kill an estimated 1,000 people. That's a lot of people. (laughs) And that's not even getting into how many were unarmed. The patterns of how many people were people of color and how many people were white. Having seen how often active shooters, particularly having lived in Pittsburgh during the Tree of Life shooting just a few years ago, when a white supremacist shot and killed people within a synagogue, and seeing the police walk them out alive, it proves to me that police officers know that they are not supposed to be executing people under suspicion. They are not supposed to be killing if they can in any way avoid killing someone in order to make sure they go through the whole justice system. They know how to do it. They know what they're supposed to do. But every year, on-duty police officers will kill an estimated 1,000 people. Every year, for the past several years. We've seen this happen again and again. It's so telling that they are able to de-escalate a situation when it involves a white person, a white, literal terrorist, someone who went to a synagogue and did a mass shooting, and they were able to take that person, that that domestic terrorist, alive. It, it's just so telling that that exists but also we see every like we see Brianna Taylor asleep in her bed being murdered mm-hmm. Tamir Rice was a child playing with a toy gun in an open carry state and was not talked to at all by the police officers and he was 12 years old Stephen Clark was holding a cell phone in his own backyard and it's because they're and they all die. Yeah, it, and it's because the, the police are taught that they are the enemy and that they are a threat no matter how little they are no matter how uh, no matter the fact that they're asleep it doesn't matter it doesn't matter because they are black and they exist and therefore they are a threat that is what Eventually, essentially, they are taught through 
just the white supremacy that exists in the United States through the way police, the police system has developed in the United States and from the overt militarization that exists in the United States. And not only one criticism that I've seen a lot within calls to defund the police is that there are a lot of people concerned about what would happen to serious criminals like rapists without the police having the same amount of resources that they have now. So what what do we do with that? Well, um, in response to what about the rapists, I can just say cops can be racist. Cops can be rapists and also racist. Every time. Um, (laughs) Every single time. It's both. They can be rapists and racists. Um, I'm going to start that over. So in response to what about the rapists, can I just say cops can be rapists. Um, in over a 99-year period, according to a study that was completed in 2018, over a nine-year period, police officers in the U.S. were charged with more than 400 rapes over a nine-year period. And that's not including more minor sexual assault charges, and that's also not including things that weren't charged, just accusations. 45 45 people a year. 45 instances of rape a year. And, oh, it says here, forcible fondling was more more common with 636 instances between 2005 and 2013. This is just what officers were charged with. We know that every 73 seconds an American is sexually assaulted. We know every nine minutes that victim is a child. We know that only five out of every 1,000 perpetrators will end up in prison. And we know that these statistics are not comprehensive because data on sexual assaults by police are basically non-existent. And this only shows what people are charged with and not the full scope of everything that has happened. Because so often, sexual assault does just doesn't get charged. Yeah, and there's a reason why this data is horrible in addition to the fact that you can't report a police officer raping you to a police officer. Like, it it just... It just logically makes no sense that you would do that. Um, The federal government cannot compel states to make the nation's 18,000 law enforcement agencies report the numbers according to the CNN article. Um, If they could, the Justice Department wouldn't even have the resources to oversee and maintain any sort of database of um, um, sexual assault within police. And we know that often the victims of the sexual assaults are suspects and people in police custody and people that the police are still supposed to protect even if they are in custody and one reason that victims often include suspects is because in 35 states there are no laws that expressly define all sex between police officers and detainees as non-consensual 
even though there's a huge power imbalance there, it does not label it as non-consensual. Even though we know that it often is. And one reason that this has been in the news lately is because a New York City teenager accused two officers of handcuffing her and taking turns raping them in the police van. They claimed it was consensual. And that's all it took. Just just the, because the, the rapists saying that it was consensual. It was deemed consensual. Yep about half of the victims are children um, which is horrifying um, and also uh, a predominance of the victims fall into categories of having criminal criminal records being homeless um, having been sex workers or having issues with drug or alcohol abuse, which means even if they tried to report sexual assaults, they wouldn't be believed. Um, according to a researcher, um, predatory cops are picking on people who juries won't believe or who don't trust the police in general, who just have a natural distrust for the police. Which just creates even more underreporting. We know that someone in custody can't give genuine consent that is free from all coercion because there are people in power over them, over their bodies. And so if you're... If you're asking, like, what about these serious criminals? What about the rapists? The current system cannot work in favor of the victim because there are rapists in the police force. You can't expect a rapist to arrest another rapist because they both of them believe that they have done nothing wrong. What about rapes that do get reported? What generally happens with them? Thousands of rape kits just don't get tested. They just, they just sit in police custody in evidence lockup for years and years and years. Which means there is DNA evidence, identities of sexual assaulters that is just going untested. Um, For those who are unfamiliar with exactly what a rape kit is, um, a rape kit often contains DNA evidence, which is collected through a sexual assault forensic exam, which is a medical process where evidence is collected from a victim's body and clothes. Uh, you would generally go to a doctor's office or a hospital. You don't necessarily have to commit to pursuing charges against your rapist in order to get this exam. Uh, but having the exam does help hold rapists accountable and gives victims a chance for justice. But unfortunately, so many rape kits have gone untested and for a really long time. If you have experienced sexual assault, please do go see a doctor. Um, please get any medical help you might need immediately 
um, even if you're not sure if you want to pursue charges against this person. Police just don't bother sending in rape kits to labs for testing if um, it's it's like the majority of, of sexual assault that exists in this world is done by an acquaintance of the victim if it's done by someone they know, which means that in a potential case against the sexual assaulter, you don't have DNA evidence backing you up. And it becomes a, a he said, she said, or, or, you know, insert gender here and said, insert gender here said. Um, it, it just becomes, you just lose so much credibility. And then people are allowed to say, well, I didn't do it or I didn't think it was rape because the evidence that it was is sitting in storage, just rotting. It is a really difficult experience to go through and so often people don't come forward uh, after they have been sexually assaulted for a lot of different reasons. But for people who do come forward, the least we can do is test their rape kits and do our best to bring them, to bring people justice. We've just outlined dozens of reasons why the police needs to be defunded, but um, let's talk about the actual money part for a second. We've seen over and over again throughout this own conversation where we talked about education, where we've talked about the need to fund the testing of our rape kit backlog. We have talked about how large police budgets are, and because police budgets are so large, they are diverting money away from our schools, healthcare, and other vital programs that need funding to strengthen our communities, because a city budget is truly a zero-sum game. If the, police's, if the police department is getting money, that means other programs that your city runs aren't getting that money. And U.S. cities collectively spend over $100 billion a year on policing, while needed investments in education, healthcare, housing, and other critical programs go completely unfilled, particularly in poor communities and communities of color. We, we need to talk about basic things. Like, there are basic needs that aren't being met in so many communities. Um, that just, like, having, having a decent school system. Um, having enough classrooms for the amount of students there are in a, school, in a school district. Like, having enough teachers and desks in a school district. Or, healthcare-wise, like, we've seen firsthand right now how terrible our public health care system is and how it needs a rehaul and a complete overhaul and there are just basic needs like health and education that aren't being met and like all that money is going somewhere and it's going to 
police departments who are just spending money, money on buying grenade launchers they don't need and tanks that they don't need. This, to put this in comparison, okay, so remember what I said about this U.S. cities collectively spending over $100 billion a year on policing? And now I'm going to say this thing, which is according to the Department of Housing and Urban Development, um, in 2013, they said it would cost only $20 billion, about less than one-fifth of what we spend on policing, mm-hmm. to end homelessness. Yeah. That, that big homelessness we, issue that, that, uh, that this country has, um, it would be solved. It would, it would be solved. Um, people often talk about how Elon Musk can easily end world hunger because of the, the billions of dollars that he has. Well, you know, you know what other money can, can pretty much end world hunger this much money, this hundred billion dollars, that's that's just going to police departments. Uh, yeah, we it just blows my mind. We live in a public society, in a democratic society, which means we do have a voice in how our communities spend money and how our community sees our morals and values. And a budget is one way to show what your community cares about. But for so long, we've invested more and more money in policing. Well, we've seen schools close, where we've seen people go homeless, where we have seen programs to feed people in poverty get smaller and smaller budgets every year and we don't need to do that anymore Mm -hmm. and also that's not even like getting into the arts which need funding like that's not even getting into the fun stuff that could be funded with this hundred billion dollars that is going to police departments any issue that we fight for and that we care about requires funding. It just does. Things aren't free. We live in a capitalist society, and we're not exactly happy about having to live through late-stage capitalism, but at the very least, we can decide to invest in programs that help our communities, that strengthen our communities, that keep people safe, and we have seen time and again that that system isn't policing. How do we act on all this information? Like, what can we do now that we know why we have to defund the police and that we have to defund the police? How do we actually make it happen? Okay, so this is really important here. You have to talk to your local officials, which, yes, is boring. It's not as glamorous as talking to your congressional representatives or your senators or telling the president you hate them on Twitter. But if you want to shrink the budget of your police department, you have to contact your local mayors, your city council members, your county council members, and ask how much taxpayer money goes to police departments, especially versus education and other things that impact your daily life. Your city budget is public information, and they do have to give it to you if you ask. And you can ask that they take serious steps towards defunding the police and investing in your community. 
Yeah, and and honestly, like, especially if you live in a smaller community, you can have a real difference just by calling them up and asking how much, how much money goes to police versus how much goes to education. You can, like, you can make such a big impact if you, even if you're in a bigger community, even if you live in New York City and you want to call, you have to call Bill de Blasio, you can make a massive difference by just calling and asking for this information and asking for real change. Um, and if, uh, if they say they can't make real change and that we need the police, um, you should recommend different community-based protection and alternatives to the police. Um, and this includes things like investing in unarmed mediation and intervention teams, like having people who are trained in mediation and de-escalation, um, maybe patrolling neighborhoods and, um, and stopping violence from happening. Um, many therapists, uh, many licensed therapists and psychiatrists have, uh, gone online and talked about de-escalation de tactics and how they're literally trained to uh, de-escalate without even touching someone, um, even if they are someone who is violent, someone who has a knife, someone who has a gun. They are taught how to de-escalate a situation so that violence, zero violence happens. Um, so... That's an actual I would, thing. I would love to have a mental health professional in our schools instead of a school resource officer. That'd be really cool. Oh, man. Uh, every school could do with really good mental health professionals, man. Um, and uh, you can also recommend decriminalizing nonviolent crime that doesn't hurt anyone. Um, for example, smoking marijuana doesn't really hurt people. All it does is put people in jail. Um, violent offenses count for a fraction of the 11 to 14 million arrests that happen every year. Um, and uh, you could work to decriminalize some of these... Uh, you can work to decriminalize some of these nonviolent offenses... Um, because who is it hurting? Like, who, who is it hurting? Who, who is vandalism hurting? Like, if, if someone spray paints something, all that needs to happen is that it's painted over, if you want that to happen. And, uh, right now, a lot of discussion is going on about, uh, restorative justice, which is really important. Um, uh, and restorative Justice is really seen as an alternative to courts and jail, um, where accountability is understood as a community issue, and the entire community, including the perpetrator and the victim, um, is tries to restore. E everyone tries to restore each other, each other, and transform in the process. It's about growing as human beings in a community together. Um, and it, and like, as opposed to having like a defendant and a, 
what's the other one? My brain. Prosecutor? Yeah. It, yeah, like, in... It's an alternative to having, like, a prosecutor and defendant that are two sides working against each other. It's about working together to grow and change and become better from whatever happened. Um, and, yeah, and also there's real mental health care. You can just... Uh, instead of putting people in jail, you can um, maybe uh, put put people give people mental health care because usually, uh, what is it in in New York, Rikers Island jails as many people with mental illnesses as all twenty four psychiatric hospitals in the New York State combined which is 40% of the people jailed at Rikers have mental illnesses and need real help, but instead they're thrown in jail. Um, and, yeah. and I also have mental illnesses, and the only reason I'm not in jail right now is because I have been given access to support systems. I'm really lucky that growing up I had support systems, even if we didn't know what my condition was because I would have acted out so much um and I just can't imagine what like black kids with mental illnesses have to deal with <laughs> because if, if they're not given the resources to deal with their mental illness if they are from a young age told like suspended and given detention and expelled from schools because they are apparently acting out when that's just them trying to figure out the world. Like, it just sounds so hard. <laughs> and, yeah, I, I just can't imagine that basically everyone needs mental health resources. We should also say that it's a complete myth that people with mental health problems are violent or unpredictable or should be jailed because... The vast majority of people with mental health problems are no more likely to be violent than anyone else. Uh, most people are non-violent if they are living with a serious mental illness, and people with severe mental illnesses are ten times more likely to be victims of violent crimes than the general population. Like, I'm of the pretty firm belief that violence is taught, um, that violence is something you learn from other people, it's not something that just like manifests in you that you have to that you're you want to destroy things um humanity in my experience wants to make things more than it wants to destroy things um so like maybe have some mental health services and maybe like violent people won't be as violent <laughs> yeah and that you know once again, that requires funding, so let's defund the police and fund things that would actually help our community. Yeah, so like, when you're calling your mayor, um, be like, hey, uh, can you maybe take some of that money you're giving to the cops and put it in mental health services, please? Okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, Alright, yeah. well, this has been a pretty, um, this has been a pretty depressing and angry episode, honestly. Yeah, it's it's been really robust um and kind of a downer um and like please so please take a second if anything was triggering to you um 
and listen to your to your brain if it's telling you that uh, you need a break from everything. Our good news this week, yeah. we're going to be sharing something very near and dear to our hearts that we use to find joy. Nerali, what are we talking about for our good news this week? Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> that is all I'm singing. But I do know okay, all of the words. I... Yes, Hamilton, a Broadway musical. A musical that you could only see with the original Broadway cast if you paid exorbitant amounts of money or won a lottery. We did not win a lottery. I I entered every single day for over a year. And I never won that freaking lottery ticket. But I finally got to see it. Theater is often really inaccessible because it's expensive. To enjoy, you can only see a live performance once, but Hamilton filmed a live performance, edited it together beautifully, just did a wonderful job in that, Mm -hmm. with the original Broadway cast, and then released it on Disney Plus for all of us to view. Yes, and um, you know our feelings on Disney uh, pretty well by now. (laughs) Um, We did a whole episode. Yeah, we did a whole episode on how it's bad that Disney owns everything, but sometimes... Sometimes they, they they accidentally do a good, and the good thing they did was make Hamilton accessible to the general public for just the fee, the monthly fee of Disney Plus. Um, although I, I am one of those people that wants to watch it over and over again, so um, maybe I will keep it. Um, but uh, it's it's always a good thing when art is more accessible. I will say that. And um, Hamilton is complicated politically, to say the least, um, as a a work of art. But um, it's something that we love. And it was very, very good and very, very well done. And oh, my God, the stuff that they didn't put in the soundtrack that was in the show was just. Oh, the part with Laurence. Oh, okay. I'm feeling things now. It's it's a really beautiful show. I really liked it. I was really excited when back in like 2015, all of my friends were suddenly really into the things that I've <laughs> always been into because like musical, politics, history, all very me. Yeah. And I was very happy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I got very good at, at, at doing the satisfied rap. That was... Huh. What a time. Like, it's weird that Hamilton is both new and nostalgic for me. You know? Yeah, even though it it didn't come out very long ago, like, historically, Mm -hmm. but it is a show that feels like it's from a different era because it was written and the performances started during, like, the Obama era. And the world is a very different place now. You could say... You could say, the world turned upside down. <laughs> wow, I am nonstop. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> okay, okay. I, you know, they might not come back after this. <laughs> 
hey, th these references are gold, and you are welcome. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Are you satisfied? <laughs> that was that was perfect. <laughs> okay, I think that's enough about Hamilton. Do we have, let's get do we have a mango back fact? To, we do have a mango fact. All right, for new listeners, we always end every episode with a mango fact because the mango is our favorite fruit. It's not that complicated of a reason. Uh, we just really like mangoes. He's just and good. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, not to play into stereotypes, but we're South Asians who like mangoes. Yeah. Mangoes are so good. Yeah, mangoes are so good that it is the national fruit of India, Pakistan, and the Philippines. It is also the national tree of Bangladesh. Alright, thank you so much everyone for listening to this episode of On Your Left. We hope that that last bit lightened the mood from all of the information we just gave you. Uh, if you want to see more from us, you can watch, subscribe to this, what are we doing? <laughs> you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you're currently listening to this podcast. New episodes are released every Wednesday, or you could support us by going to our Patreon at patreon.com slash onyourleftpod. Narali, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me at Firewood Sparkler on the internet, um, and uh, we also hang out at onyourleftpod on Twitter. Uh, Katrina, where can we find you? You can find me at Katrina Ames. Yeah. Nice and simple. Nice and simple. Yeah. The Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Have a great rest of your week. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for listening. Have a good one.